0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to another Leads That interview. Whoa, this one's a Brinterview. It's a Brinterview? Yeah, of course it is. Ah, it is a Brinterview because Andy and Matt had the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with Brin Law. Commentating legend that is uh, Brin Law. Matthew, you did a a great section on Bryn Law in one of our early podcasts as well.
0: Yeah, this um my wife said to me before we went to meet Bryn, she said, Just imagine what ten year old Matt would have uh, would have thought about today. And it made me even more nervous. I was gonna it? say, I bet you were horrendously <laughs> nervous for that. I haven't thought about it because but it you know, if I could go back and tell my uh childhood self that you are off to meet Bryn Law, it would have been it would have been overexcited to say the least. Especially as I threw you under a bus straight away. <laughs> yeah, he did. Let's hear you throw him under a bus.
2: You might have heard previously in our podcasts, for all you avid listeners, that Matt described Bryn Law as the best signing
0: of the summer. Discuss, Matthew. Yeah, I did. And I stand by it. Ben White comes a close second, I think.
3: Oh, come on. Ben (laughs) White has been the signing of the summer. You maybe just didn't know that at the time. All right, Bryn, you're second then in that case. (laughs) I'll take that.
0: So the first question, Bryn. Yeah. Are you a Leeds fan?
3: Uh, well no I'm not Not that, that's maybe putting it a bit too straightforward but I'm a Wrexham fan and that's because I grew up in Wrexham I was born in Liverpool so I could have been a Liverpool fan but I moved watched Wrexham the first weekend after I had moved home moved from Liverpool to North Wales and that was it stuck with the Wrexham all the way through from there on up to this point it's getting incredibly difficult now because Wrexham are not at all good at the moment but um, as for another time uh but I saw so I watched my first the first Leeds game I watched was in while I was at university so it would be in nineteen probably in nineteen eighty eight and it was uh Leeds v. West Brom at Ellen Road. But I was in the away end because my pal at university, a lad called Adrian Childs, was a big West Brom fan. Wow. And they were on a good run and he'd insisted that we go up to watch West support West Brom, his team at Ellen Road. So that's what we did. He dragged me out of my pit one Saturday morning in my student accommodation and we jumped in a minibus and drove up to Ellen Road and it was absolutely terrifying because we parked, got there too early, parked by the ground, sat like anonymously in a minibus because he'd brought a few of his mates up, a few of us up from London. And then we went in the ground and the, it was an atmosphere like I hadn't experienced before probably because the two the, the boys' pens or whatever they were down um, on the right to the right of the away supporters' end just seemed to be a load of lads battering each other in there with, with white bucket hats on. So it was, it was a pretty scary experience. So that was my first ever Leeds uh, experience, Ellen Road experience. But then I popped up, obviously, to do the first games that Your Leeds got me involved with, um, which was after I'd finished all my journalism training and started working. So that was the uh, Makita tournament at Ellen Road. That was the first experience of working there. And then the following week, they took me to Wembley. I'd never been to Wembley before either. I had tickets for Madness at Finsbury Park that day. I had to <laughs> give up. But I went to Wembley for the charity shield. So the the relationship goes back a long way. Naturally, I've been in the city ever since. Loads of my mates are Leeds fans. So I would be a liar if I didn't say that, you know, they, they're, they're, some of that doesn't rub off, because quite clearly it does. There's a fondness. Yeah, that's a good word. Fondness, yeah. Absolutely.
0: And... When you first went to that game um, against West Brom, was there a potential that you could become a West Brom fan, no. or did you look at the no. did you come to Island Road and see it and think, oh, "I'll you know"? Lead well, I never thought I'd special. be
3: going back there on a regular basis. Obviously, quite as regular as I have been going back there. But you could tell it was a club with something going on there. It was it was one of those because it was such a different atmosphere. It was so intense, and you, and you, you were seeing the sort of scenes away to our right-hand side. I think even the West Brom fans were just slightly bewildered by the by the whole thing. Um, but uh, no, I, I couldn't have predicted at that point I'd be back at Leeds quite so regularly. Although I did have in my mind at that point, even at that point, that I'd want to be covering football, you know, and it would be what two or three years hence when I started doing that. So I did have that in mind at least.
2: Yeah, so that, that leads me on perfectly. How did you get into that? Because as, as a young man who's interested in sport, that's a dream gig, isn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah, so they tell me. But I, I, <laughs> I, I had it as a, as a. Um, in the same way that I started, I obviously was playing football when I was in Liverpool as a as a, a, a wee boy, um, I was playing football there and it was a football mad city and Liverpool had a brilliant football team at the time. And um, I realised that I wasn't going to be a very good footballer as much as I loved the game and was very enthusiastic about it and all the rest of it. I wasn't going to be good enough, I didn't think, to play the game. It's a
2: horrible realisation,
3: I think. Yeah, especially as an eight-year-old. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, The next stage of of that mindset uh, of the thinking was that I used to listen to uh, Radio 2 as it was, the match commentaries on Radio 2. Liverpool were playing all these European games uh, all the time, big European matches. I'd get sent to bed because I was seven or eight or whatever it was, and I would take my little transistor underneath the bed covers and I would tune into Radio 2 and the commentary was generally by Peter Jones and Alan Parry, who to me are two absolutely iconic figures and voices in particular. And it would be a crackly, sort of fizzy uh, radio line because they used to do, as I've subsequently found out, they used to do the commentaries on the telephone, basically. So they would be somewhere like the the Stadium of Light, Benfica, and you would really, you would just listen and get the whole atmosphere of the thing through the words that they offered over the airwaves. So I really thought that I'd love to do that. So that was my, I would have been eight or nine when I decided that's what I wanted to do. It was one of those sort of... um, right, that's it, I'm, I'm quite clear now. And I actually began the process fairly soon after that of making sure that I gave myself a chance to do that. So by the age of 14, I was doing hospital radio commentaries in Wrexham, where I was obviously where I was living by now. And I was writing articles for a, a talking newspaper for the blind football articles. And then I was like accompanying journalists to the match. So I was proper keen. I, was, I, was, I had a plan. I went to uni to do English and drama, I did quite a lot of drama when I was at school, but the reason I was doing the drama bit because I thought it would help in terms of the commentaries. Yeah. And the English obviously is the sort of words and all the rest of it. So that was all part of the plan. I was writing for fanzines. Um and then I came out of uni and even before I came out of uni and did a one year course in broadcast journalism. And even before I'd finished that, I'd actually got my first paid match coverage gigs with a with a freelance station in Wrexham, covering Wrexham uh and or Hated Chester games, um, so my first commentary was quite quickly after finishing uh, at, at the uh, postgrad course in Preston. Within a few months of the end of that, I'd commentated on a on a on a Wrexham game on the proper radio now, having done the hospital radio previously. So that was the plan, and so from that point on, it kind of and the next stage of the journey took me to Barrow for a bit to work for Radio Cumbria, but there's no sport involved there. But then I got a call from Leeds to come and work in Leeds to do, to do some sport and some news and that was another chance to get a foot in the door. And then they gave me more and more sport and then I just became a sort of full-time and got the Leeds gig in oh, about 93, I think it was.
2: Yeah, so you did that until 98 on Radio Leeds for the Leeds. Didn't yeah, you? that's that right. Day? Yeah, I
3: did five or six years of pretty much every Leeds United match um, home and away. So that was brilliant. I mean, that I, I was that was the time of my life. Basically, at that point, loved yeah. doing that. It was fantastic. Can you uh, pick out any
2: specific highlight and low light from those times? Well, the whole were- thing
3: was a highlight because it. I mean, we had such a great laugh doing it. I had Norman Hunter alongside me. He was uh, just the nicest, um, best guy ever, you know, and um, and was just a joy to work with. But also, sometimes if Norman wasn't doing it, it'd be Peter Lorimer, who was brilliant, or it'd be Eddie Gray, who was fantastic. So I was meeting these people. I got to know all the Revy boys, basically, and I was only—I was in my early 20s. And I was talking to them and with them as if I'd been you know, with the club all the way through the great European nights from sort of 1968 onwards or whatever. So... I got a real sense of what the club was about from being around them, but also from watching so much football with Norman. I, I think I learned a lot about football as well, because there's so many phrases that he used in commentaries repeatedly that I still use now. One of my favourites of Norman's would be at half-time of a particularly poor game. His first comment in the half-time break to me was would always be, ''Well, it'll never replace football, pal.'' And and that's one of those things that I still, little catchphrases that he had that I'll, you know, I still keep using to this day. So it was a brilliant, brilliant education that I got with them. And the games that stand out would be the Monaco way was a great trip with the Yoboa hat-trick and, and Norman was there out there with me and we, we ate pasta by the, by the marina side in the afternoon of the game and it had, you know, had all that thing going on with it. So we enjoyed the European aspect. Um, Derby... Uh, Four three at home was a good game. Um, Spurs won all away when Brian Dean got the goal that took Leeds into UEFA um, Cup. So that, yeah, there was some there were some games that I uh, any game that involved a Tony Yeboa, um, a cracking Iboah goal was always enjoyable just because it was great watching him basically. So there was a few, there was quite a few that sort of uh, linger in the memory. Yeah, yeah. Any that linger
0: in the memory for the wrong reasons? I know that there's. Like you say, those games that Norman would comment on at half time, there, the first half wasn't particularly pretty. Are there any? Well, that, that was, an was the so
3: George G. Graham period, right, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> effectively, uh, I was looking at the stats here. I was just been reading, rereading the history of Leeds, the that the book that's out, and uh, I sort of picked up on the number of nil nil draws that were there were in that George Graham period. I hadn't realized it was quite so many, but. That, so that was a that was a bit tricky in that there wasn't an awful lot to get excited about in that period. But the, I think the most disappointing Leeds commentary of all for me was quite obviously and easily the League Cup final. Oh, and yeah. that was a, a bit of a turning point for a while for the club as well because the, the, the build-up to that had been massive. It was my birthday as well. Oh, happy birthday. Wow. Yeah. No celebrations there. I think then. it was
2: like my 11th or 12th birthday. It was wounding.
3: Well, I'd gone, I'd gone, I I, I I was writing some stuff for the Leeds United magazine, as was at the time, and I'd managed to get myself a special suit made for it, um, a bespoke suit that a tailor in Leeds had made. And so I turned up in this in this uh, jazzy suit and I was on the pitch before the game. For those who were there might remember, I was given, the, fantastic, I and mean, it was amazing for me, that I was given this opportunity to go out on the pitch and get Leeds fans warmed up, as it were, before the match. So to walk up, to be announced onto the pitch, walk up the tunnel at Wembley was just amazing. And how old are you at this stage? Well, I think it was about, tw- I'd have been about 26 or something like that. Oh, so it incredible. was like, how did this happen? Literally, that was one of those moments when I was standing there thinking, how on earth has, has this happened kind of thing. So that was, it was all brilliant. The build-up was brilliant. And then the game was disastrously bad. And I was then standing in that very same tunnel at the end of the game when Howard Wilkinson walked off the pitch, and I have never heard abuse like he got inside a stadium as he walked off that pitch, and he looked absolutely destroyed. It was, it was horrible. You know people were so angry and so disappointed, and the thing released was well, so poor on the day that that's, that must be the standout bad one.'s got, yeah, got I, to I think that's a great
0: call. I mean, all through this period. Um, As I've said on the podcast before, I'm sat in my bedroom listening to it rather crackly, to be honest, uh, in a similar way to you listening to radio too. It was uh, not the greatest reception uh, in North Yorkshire, but I was listening to it avidly every single game that you're at. But quite often, one of the things I loved was hearing you and Norman talking about things other than the game. So it might be the weather, the size of the press box, your view of the game, the journey down, those types of things. Occasionally,
3: it was the night out before as well, (laughs) usually involving me. And Norman chastising me for the state that I'd arrived at the stadium (laughs) in. Do you have a good one last night, pal? And all that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, well, that was because we travelled together a lot of the time. So we would spend long hours together in the car up and down the M1, uh, generally in the car up and down to wherever it was. And Norman always had it. footballers, uh, as I've come to learn, have this incredible ability to sleep anywhere, anytime, So Norman would get in the car and we'd be driving to, you know, one of the bad ones, like Charlton or somewhere like that. And he would go, after about half an hour chit-chat, Norman would say, I tell you what, pal, I'm just going to have a little zuzz and that was Norman speak for. I'm just gonna have a little sleep, and he would then fall asleep, and invariably would wake up incredibly within probably when we were a mile away from the stadium or whatever. So, so but all that stuff was all part of the package kind of thing, and uh, we we you know we'd, we'd see each other away from games and stuff, and I got to know his wife and his his son and daughter and, and all the rest of it. So you know we, we had a we had a really strong relationship, and that helped add to the whole thing, but also. I hope, because I watched football as a fan, I've only ever been a fan, no more than that, and I've been to away games, and I've been in the back of transit vans to watch matches, and I've been with my mates on coaches up at 7 o'clock in the morning, first pint at 10 past 7, all that. I understood that side of things. So I know that an away game is a bit more than just a game of football. In fact, very often, (laughs) invariably, that's the, the least enjoyable bit of the entire experience.
2: Yeah, that's that. I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> echo that more because we've been some horrible, horrible away games and we've just actually enjoyed the journey. The
3: Sometimes batten. they can be the best day of your life and you get home and your partner will say to you, how do they get on? And you're so, they lost 4-0. <laughs> yeah. And yet you've still, you've had a fantastic And They'll say, well, what do you bother for then? I mean, I had that with Wales in, in Eindhoven when they played Holland once and we left all our partners in Amsterdam having a big night out on cocktails and all the rest of it. And before we went, they said, what will the score be? And me and my pal, Stu, who lives in Leeds as well, big Wrexham fan, said, oh, we'll lose four or five. And they said, well, why are you going then? Well, we're in Amsterdam. But why wouldn't we? <laughs> Where else would we And when be, we yeah. came back from then they were even heavy, more heavily into the cocktails. They said, well, go on then. How do you get on? Was it four or five? We said, no, no, it wasn't that. And they went, oh, how do you get on? It was worse than that. It was seven. <laughs> and, but, but it was just, that was another great trip. Great trip, lost seven <laughs> nil.
2: Well, you've kind of touched on it there. Um, you're a big Wales fan, big Wrexham fan. Now, it's easy for us as Leeds fans to get carried away and have a favourite player, both mine and Matt's is David Batty. We have the romance that a Leeds boy's come through. Yeah, yeah. When you look back subjectively, I mean, obviously it's well known you've got an affinity for Gary Speed. Who was your favourite Leeds player from, from that time?
3: Oh, that's a tough question. Thanks. Um, thanks. <laughs> uh, that's um oh Well, Gary, um, Gary was a great. It was a f- kind of a friend um, and a great player, obviously as well. But in terms of the box office, I'd probably go back to um, Tony Eboa because in that period in which I was commentating, there was there were some there, there were box office players, but I missed the championship season by. A matter of months, and I picked up off the back of that charity shield, being sort of the first proper Leeds game I did or worked on. Um, so I, so I didn't have that championship bit. So, um, so my my sort of attractions would be to other players who played in different periods. So yeah, I, I enjoy. I just enjoyed it, the sort of anticip, sense of anticipation whenever Yeboa played, as to you were never quite sure what was going to happen. Um, and occasionally it was incredibly spectacular sort of thing.
0: Yeah, we've uh, said before, my particular favourite is the Wimbledon goal and your description of that is one of the yeah, best I pieces. I enjoyed
3: listening back to that, slightly embarrassed, but um, <laughs> nevertheless I did enjoy listening <laughs> it, back to it. it. It's
0: interesting because for the centenary, BBC Radio Leeds have obviously been, for the centenary, we've been playing some of the old commentaries of which some of yours have been a part of that. And they, they played out on Twitter the... Liverpool goal which was obviously a few months before yeah. Wimbledon and you didn't seem quite as you didn't go quite as ballistic for that one Bryn but looking back have you got which of the two do you think is the
3: best? Uh, I think the Liverpool goal was, was really I, particularly when you look at the TV coverage obviously it was a Sky game wasn't it that one when you look at the TV coverage and you can see in the because it was a lovely warm August evening and um and you can see kind of the, the, the whatever they are, the moths or whatever flying yeah. around kind of thing under the floodlights because it was just getting that to that po- point where it was almost like kind of like dusk. So the image, the game was rotten, by the way, that that game was rotten. And that was the only, uh, memory suggests, that was the only sort of exciting moment that I can recall from that game. But it did have the atmosphere about it. It looked, it just looked, because of all those elements, it looked fantastic kind of thing.
2: Another one that you, you touched on earlier was the 4-3 against Derby with Bowyer's comeback goal at Ellen Road. Um, I remember your commentary sparking an entire feature in the Leeds, Leeds, Leeds magazine. Do you have recordings no, of your comments? No, no, nothing oh, at all. Do you never relive no. any of them?
3: No. Well, I do now. I used to, I never used to. It was quite difficult in the old days because unless you actually put a cassette in a, in a, in a tape recorder and recorded yeah. them, they would record them at Leeds. So I would reuse bits of them because we had to make little promos and trails with them sometimes or there would be a montage at the end of a season or something like that. So I'd have to reuse bits but I I never ever sat down and listened back because it's actually not something I particularly enjoy doing. Although I've started doing it a bit more now with the LUTV stuff because it pops up on a website so it's quite easy to access. And also just a check as a check and balance that it sounds okay, basically.
2: Yeah, I suppose as fans, for us, we find it quite nostalgic and kind of get a real kick from hearing those back. But as the person doing it, How's, how's that
3: is it it just makes you feel old <laughs> <laughs> that basically so you think, who's that young idiot <laughs> who was getting so excited about stuff back then so yeah I, I, I don't have any archive of anything I've done previously um, although now there is an archive a new archive if that makes sense because now things do get kept and, and they're readily available to people via YouTube and all the rest of it so And I do listen back a bit more now. Even I was listening to a bit of the Sheffield Wednesday commentary yesterday and cringing as I was listening to it because I knew there was a bit in it that I didn't like and I knew it was going to be there because it was close to a chance. So I kind of covered my ears for that bit and and just sort of made a loud noise so I didn't hear that particular moment. So you still kind of – because they're difficult because they're – it's a radio commentary, LUTV, because it's primarily for people listening – but then it's also getting laid over TV pictures. And I've done both radio and TV commentary, and they're very different. Um, You know, you're talking in a very different way and about very different things. So they're not the same thing, and yet they're they're married together in that instance. So it's occasionally they're awkward bedfellows, I've got to say. When you're talking about
0: critiquing yourself in commentaries I suppose that's similar to what Bielsa does with the players after the game going back over the tape of it and deciding what went well and what went wrong how do you what are the the things that you're looking for from a really good commentary what have you learned over the years about what makes a good commentator
3: well, the key uh, uh, that again, there's two different strands. So it's a radio commentator or a TV commentator. TV commentary, which I did quite a bit of at Sky, is I find difficult. I'm, I would say I wouldn't be a. Nat- I'm not a natural TV commentator because it's a lot more based. Because people can see what's already going on, you don't need to describe the action per se. You need to embellish the action with things that you say. And that's not not really my forte. I didn't find that as easy as going to a game and acting in the radio commentary role purely as the eyes and ears of the people who aren't at the game. It's a very simple task. That's all you've got to do. And I was told very early on that you should be sort of given a score update every five minutes or so because people are joining the commentary as it goes on. Not everyone's been there from the beginning. So the first thing they they want to know when they join is what's the score. So try and remember that. And then the next thing is very straightforward. Tell the person where the ball is currently. Anything beyond that is actually, is really sort of, is not necessary. You can add stuff, but anything other than saying the ball is here and X is giving it to Y now, that's the absolute job. You can embellish that with then the weather, the atmosphere, the things that I would look for if I went to a game as a fan that I'd want to know how noisy is that are the away, are the away supporters is always a one when you're at an away game. How many have we got there today? Um, and, and so I try and offer some sort of that, the, the bit more of the, 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 colour and the flavour of the event, if you like, as well around it. But the absolute fundamental with the radio commentary is just to tell people what's happening, which is why I've got occasionally, uh, when we were doing the radio leads commentaries, we had, we had the commercial station as a rival and, and they went for it because Norman and I had got this pally kind of rapport going and we talked about the fact we were going to go out and have a beer after the game and, and all the rest of it and if Leeds had won we'd probably have two beers after the game that sort of thing um, which people seemed to like and then I th- the commercials guys came in and I think they picked up on that aspect of it and they wanted to that's what they made bigger than almost bigger than the commentary in a way so there, there was a lot of chat about the that they'd been out. That the commentator was, you know, that, that they were doing things. Com- it was more about what was uh, away from the game. I was finding when I was hearing it because I'd started with Sky when they were still doing that, so I was a more chance to listen. And I just come back to that main point about doing, just doing the simple job, basically of telling people what's happening. That's that's it. You know, it's, it's, it is quite straightforward, frankly. And do you
0: think that you have that um, bias towards radio commentary because that's where you started, essentially?
3: I think I have the bias towards radio commentary because TV commentary almost doesn't need to happen. I mean, you could you could watch coverage that's of a, a television point. match and not have any commentary, and I'm I'm really surprised that people are still kind of wedded to this idea of having to have a TV commentator.
2: Yeah, that, when Gary Neville started at Sky, I muted the
3: TV. for the first. <laughs> Well, we, that's a, it's a fair point because people have people they like and people they don't like, and that. More of a personality tends to come through in a TV commentary, in a sense, than it does because you've got more bits to fill in that aren't actually just the simple stuff about describing what's happening in the game. And if there are people you don't like, people will turn off the entire thing. And, it, and it's difficult because everybody can see what's happening anyway. So you can disagree with the commentator directly and say, well, I don't agree with what you've just said there. was a radio commentary, you've got to take my word for it. Um, and so that, you know, you have to trust me to kind of get it right, if you like. But that does gives me an advantage because you can't see it generally, except with LUTV when sometimes you can, which is, a you know, we've already touched on that. So there is a big difference. That's why I like radio commentary, because I like being entrusted with the role of just being able to see it on your behalf. And
0: Presumably there's a bit of a difference between commentating for BBC Radio Leeds and the club now, and then having to take those more neutral commentaries that, you you perhaps did at Sky. I remember in your early days at Sky, listening to you commentate at Elland Road on a game, I think we beat Coventry 3-0, vaguely remember it. And it just sounded strange because when you were on the radio, you were very much in the Leeds camp. Obviously you had Norman Hunter sat next to you.
3: Everybody was willing. And he would always say we.
0: Yes, everybody was willing (laughs) Leeds to win.
3: So that that must make a difference as well in how you... Yeah, absolutely. When I I, um, got the Sky... Thing, particularly the soccer Saturday stuff and often quite often popped up at Ellen Road to do games. Actually, if you look back at the footage, if you if you examine the archive, if such a thing exists, you will definitely be able to tell. I suspect that I get more excited about a Leeds goal than I do about an opposition goal. Yeah, I can, I, I, I don't think I'd have been. I was at, standing at the gantry on the gantry over the co- hanging over the cop, basically. It was that smile, Bryn. So, well, there are certain <laughs> things that I probably couldn't. There were little trigger things. So, I've got to say. I wasn't strictly, um, possibly completely neutral, but that was (laughs) the aim of the exercise, clearly, because uh, the only thing in my defence was there'd be more Leeds fans watching it than any other team that the Leeds were playing against because that's the nature of Leeds in the Championship or any other division for that matter. So, yeah, it was hard to disguise it at that time, but, yeah, I was meant to be neutral, (laughs) honest.
2: You had some good times working at Sky, no doubt. But as a football fan yourself, you'll have heard the Leeds fans singing quite a derogatory song about Sky. Yes, I have. Can you uh, sympathise with us, kind of fans, on the changes, the time changes, oh, yeah, and, yeah, and everything that goes along with that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've I've experienced it myself this season because I'm planning my life around Leeds fixtures these days, obviously. Um, so when I'm planning around Leeds fixtures, I'm looking to say right Saturday three pm. And then it isn't Saturday 3pm, it's Sunday at 12.30 or whatever it might be. I mean, I haven't done many Saturday 3pm's, frankly, this season. So now I'm experiencing that same sort of level of why are we here at this time uh, that Leeds fans must experience? Because getting to away games is difficult when it's not the middle of the afternoon, when it's in the morning or if it, it's Certainly in is. the evening. Yeah, yeah. So, so I I mean, I, I, I think I've always, got, I've always got that. Leeds are a victim of their own success on this one because Leeds are the team that, Gets the biggest viewing figures. I saw something the other day that said Leeds v Villa last season was um, Sky's best watch game outside of one of those involving the, the top five or six teams, I believe. So the viewing figures were were really good, and on on the basis of that Sky commercial operation, they're going to keep coming back to where they get the biggest audience. But I'd have to say that I think I don't I don't know how sensitive they are to this sort of I mean they'll know because every game at Ellen Road they do they have to start muting the mics these days you know there's somebody sitting on it waiting for that for the chant to start so that they, they they can't not be aware and they've been hearing it at other grounds as well it's not just that happening at Leeds now so there are other places as well so they have a product that they're trying to sell there. And uh, they sell the product well. I've got to say, it. The, you know, they cover football really, really well. I know that. I saw it from from inside. But the relationship with the people who watch the games, who pay to watch the games, is something that I think they maybe find a bit more difficult because they're entirely focused on the people who watch at home. I mean, it's like the whole VAR debate. Anyone who goes to a game can't be a big fan of VAR, in to my mind, because it ruins the spectacle and it ruins the key thing, which is, my presence at the stadium is all about me seeing an 89th minute winner, particularly away from home. That's literally why why people go. I don't think people who administrate football kind of get this. It's killing the celebration, isn't it? Yeah, you can't, If you kill the celebration, you genuinely kill the entire thing because there are so many people go just on the off chance and it's highly unlikely to happen but they go on the off chance they experience that again because they've in, they've done it once and once you've done it once it, it's, it becomes addictive you want to do it again and again and again
2: it's, it's like the old adage never leave before the final whistle We, I remember we were losing 5-0 at home to Blackpool and in my head in the 93rd minute we could still win 6-5
3: Well you're stupid Thank you You should have gone
2: <laughs> But you
3: know what I mean you, you could have had a well, if a game's tight, I, I mean, I've left, a, I left many over 40 odd years. Well, imagine missing that moment. Exactly. It's missing the moment. And even then, you know, what do you gain? You gain five minutes a year. But, but that's, that, that's the, the whole thing is about, is about the, the, the outburst of emotion that you can't get. Football is the best, biggest sport in the world because it offers that one thing for me that, out, that, that a chance to go completely mad. For, for two or three minutes, to lose it completely, to get out of your body in terms of joy and euphoria and all the rest of it. And the reason no sport can compete with football properly is because no sport really offers that same hit like that. So if you tamper with that, with things like VAR, and to a to a bigger, ex, well, to a, a, in a different way, changing kickoff times, because that impacts on re, on atmospheres and people find it harder to get to games or don't feel like they want to go to games... Or it's early in the morning, you, know, you play a Sunday lunchtime game. What sort of atmosphere are you going to get on a Sunday lunchtime? I mean, most atmospheres are alcohol-fueled. So uh, if you don't give people that opportunity for whatever reason, the atmosphere changes. So you're tampering with all this stuff at your peril, frankly.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you've absolutely put your finger on it with the last-minute winners, the moments of euphoria. I quite often describe football as gambling, but with your emotions instead of money. So you go to the game and, you know, you put all of your, you know, emotions on the game. If you score that last-minute winner, you get a huge high. Yeah,
3: yeah, You're yeah. You're rewarded. Generally, you walk away <laughs> Yeah, other empty times. Handed.
0: Other times you don't <laughs> win. And uh, that, for me, that's what it's all about. Um, interesting you say that. There's somebody paid at Sky to sit on the button to... Mute the chants or overlay something on top of those chants. How aware are the broadcasters of it? Did it ever come up in conversation? Oh with yeah, you, yeah. When you were
3: well, I, I bumped into um, Keith Andrew after I'd left a game. After Sorry left to I hear Sky. that. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't literally bump into him, so it wasn't a physical assault or anything like that. But Keith had been—I was at a game on the Sunday, and Keith had been at a Leeds game the day before. And he told me the tale of his walk back from the from the um, from the stand to his car when I think he ultimately required security or whatever it might be. Uh, he hadn't been he hadn't had a very good time anyway. So he Keith is fully aware, for instance, that he is not popular at Leeds United. Mm. So um, I don't, you know. So yeah, people, of course, people know, and and people who work uh, at. Ellen Road, you know the the, the broadcasters are, a, are more than aware of the fact that there there's an you know there's a, a, a potential animosity towards them there. Um, but it wasn't it, it, when before Sky it was ITV. I remember was it Histon in the in the FA yeah, Cup yeah. and ITV Cup for it when somebody found the the pitch side microphone and stuff. So it's <laughs> it's not entirely a new phenomenon. This it, it, it there's a bit of history to it.
2: Uh, it was in the news recently that the EFL have admitted the process for the sale of TV rights was a bit flawed. What's your view on how broadcasters treat the lower leagues? You've obviously seen it from a championship perspective of Leeds, but does that happen with Wrexham too? <laughs> uh,
3: well, we don't get anything pretty much from our broadcast deal at Wrexham because, you know, the B, the, there's a BT Sport deal there, but the, the clubs get, I mean, peanuts, literally peanuts from it. And the same thing happens there with crazy kickoff times and rescheduling and all the rest of it. Yeah. So everybody's impact. The one thing I'll say about the whole thing is that I, um, whilst the tinkering with kickoff, or more than tinkering with kickoff times is not, is not great because it makes people's lives difficult. And if you make la- fans' lives difficult and they decide to stop going, then football has got a big problem because the spectacle isn't enhanced by having supporters in the stadium. Mm. However... The flip side a little bit to that is look up and down the country at the fact that there's still, well, sorry, there are 91, there were 92 clubs, but we're 91 at the moment. And the fact that so many have kept going for so long and that the Football League is a vibrant product. I I mean, I've watched Football League at a time. I watched games at Wrexham when they were in the Football League when we had crowds of under a 1,000, which would be unthinkable at, at any level, frankly now because clubs are better supported gates generally going have gone up and up and up in the EFL I think they've done and not everyone would agree with me in Leeds I'm sure but I think the EFL have done a pretty good job of marketing the product that they have of selling this thing it's really popular overseas uh, and maybe they, they they push too hard on that sometimes but they've done a really good job of making the championship a big a big big league frankly and um so that side of things is is has gone really really well stadia have improved beyond recognition when i started going to watch games stands grounds were falling apart they were literally falling apart and now grounds at all levels have been most of them have been vastly improved lots of new stadia are out there as well and most of that i've got to say is as a result of the broadcast input that that money has made it possible for clubs, even though the clubs in league two are not getting anything, even a fraction of what the the premier league clubs are getting. Still that regular input of, of fairly significant funds has allowed clubs to make decisions, to do things like build a new stand or, you know, improve the toilets or whatever it might be. So there has been a benefit. Look at the stadia. They look far better. The product is Look, the games, the players. I think I do think are fitter. Some will will argue with me. I think the game. I mean, the championship's fantastic. Some of the matches that you see in the championship are brilliant. They might not be the best footballing spectacle you've ever seen.
2: It's the most competitive league in the world.
3: And it's completely unpredictable. The games are quite often mad games. And it's been the case for years that has now. You've got a bit of the craziness of people trying to get in the Premier League. And then the craziness of not wanting to drop out the Championship. So you mix it all up and you get a potent product. It's really good to watch. Um, And I I like Championship. I don't think I've watched a single Premier League game this season. I haven't been to one live, for sure, because I don't, I'm not working on them anymore as I used to be. I haven't, I, I haven't watched a match of the day or anything like that. I like watching championship football because of the uncertainty and the atmosphere and all the rest of it around it. And, and, the, as lack much as, <laughs> well, and the lack of VAR. And ma- the lack of That's going to get massive. People are actually going to start watching VAR free football. I'm convinced of it soon. It, the EFL would do well to market VAR free football.
2: Do you think the AI will last past this season in Premiership? Uh, it
3: will. It undoubtedly will, because there's too much being invested in in it as a as a as a thing, as an entity. They'll they'll really push it it, it it'll get two, three it'll probably be there forever, frankly. It's getting hammered though, isn't it? It is. Um but Is that teething problems? Uh, partly for me it's not teething unless it's 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 teething you're never gonna solve it, well, you've got another human being involved. These are not algorithms that are making these decisions or, or some crazy clever computer. It's still another bloke watching the same pictures that everybody else has seen.
0: Yeah, it's not like the wristwatch for the um, yeah, That's straightforward. For
3: it's in, it's not, that's great. Uh, by the way, that costs an absolute fortune to implement really? in itself. So the championship having that, you, you know, I would park in the TV compound to go and cover a game, soccer satay or whatever, and I'd park usually next to the van, which the guys who do Hawkeye arrive in, and then they go into the tunnel and they distribute the the, the watches to the, the match officials. They go in the dressing room to do that. So then they go out and test it. They're doing that. So every club has got the post posts with the, the cameras in. So they have to install all of that stuff. So they got the guys going to work on it every weekend. All the kind of upkeep around it. It co- so for how many decisions does as Hawkeye made over the course of the two or three years it's been in place? It's a, it's a handful. I don't think I've ever seen a game and i've watched a lot of championship football i can't remember i've never seen a game when, when they've used it i don't think i've ever seen a game when they've used it we've seen a couple at leeds but you, the thing is as a fan you trust it so yeah it's but that's an easy it's yeah. an easy one or it appears to be an easy one the
0: ref looks at his watch he makes, yeah, he, he in, makes it
3: instantly yeah. there's no hold up and I look at other sports, rugby league, rugby union. I only like football, I'll be honest with you. I, I watch the other team sports and and I was watching some of that rugby league, oh sorry, rugby union world cup and the game just stops constantly. But everyone seems to have got into the, I mean, I know it stops anyway, rugby union. So there's a different pattern, natural pattern to a game of rugby union. Football is at its best when it's free flowing and it gets exciting and you're drawn in. And if even the players are now saying that they're thinking once then twice before they celebrate Scoring what appears to have been a goal—it's a, it's a massive. It's going to be a massive issue. Something that. wrong? Yeah, something's missing. Then.
0: Okay, well, just going back to your move to Sky in the late nineties, um, how how big a decision was that? Did did you leave Radio Leeds with a heavy heart, or was it? Oh, yeah, such yeah, a big did,
3: opportunity. Well, both both of those are true. I left with a heavy heart because I was really I'd really enjoyed it, but I had a I had an idea about. I'd done um, it sounds crazy in hindsight but I'd had you know six or seven years of what I'd done at Radio Leeds I thought well maybe it's time for a change because I was kind of that. I was heading towards 30 by that point so yeah it was was a heavy heart the natural route from Radio Leeds generally speaking was to go and work for what was then was it Radio 5 I think it was then as opposed to Radio 5 Live so others had made that um, journey before me so Peter Drury who was one of my predecessors doing the league united commentaries he'd gone down to work for them and John Champion before him had gone down to work for them Miles Harrison had worked at radio leeds he'd he'd made that move as well
0: obviously Ian Dennis did it after and him and then right? Ian
3: Dennis did it after me but for some reason I had um, delusions of of TV grandeur or something so I felt that my next move maybe it was the acting bit coming out again the drama bit I felt my next move the natural next move was into and to tell and it became very it was made very easy for me actually because the guy who was up in um in Leeds working as the Sky Sports um reporter regional reporter was a lad called Rob McCaffrey and I'd got to know Rob from uh, through a mutual friend of ours i knew of his work from Granada days and stuff as well so we we saw quite a lot of each other and he he decided he was going to go down to London to c- pursue his Sky career from HQ in London. So he was leaving a gap, and they were about to start this new thing called Sky Sports News on this Sky Digital product that they were launching. So when he went down there, they said, "Is there anyone that you know of in Leeds who might fill in for you to do to take on this new role?" So he mentioned my name, and then they got in touch, and I went down there to see them. And so it was, and then they said, "Yeah, well, the job's yours." So it was made very very easy the move it was kind of presented to me if you like so over the summer it was the end of the season and over the summer I think it happened around July and so I worked a little bit of notice at, at Radio Leeds and then I did one last game which was Leeds um, at Middlesbrough the first game of the season which I did probably egotistically as a sort of a farewell appearance, which which brilliantly turned out to be a nil-nil draw.
0: Yeah, I (laughs) I remember it well. It affected me. We probably won't leave this in the podcast, but I remember you saying I'm moving on to Pastures New at the beginning or the end of that and being absolutely gutted. Oh, that's good to hear.
3: (laughs) I I remember it, so it was worth doing it. All right, right. well, I don't remember any of it. I know Pete (laughs) Lorimer did the co-coms on that one, but... I'd already started at Sky I'd done three or four days at Sky by the time I did that I dispensation to do this the big farewell yeah. um but it didn't quite work to plan in terms of the game at least anyway that's probably the best send off you can have a nil nil draw in Middlesbrough isn't it leads that yes absolutely yeah, that absolutely true. yeah it was so that was that was the yeah and then I made the I made the transition what was very odd about making the transition was that I was used to going to commentate on games, and I'd done not just Leeds, but I'd done Bradford, Huddersfield, Halifax. And, um, over a course of six or seven years, I'd been doing loads of commentaries, and then I went to Sky Sports News, this new thing that nobody could see at that point anyway, because they hadn't actually officially launched it. as a As a general reporter, and I had worked as a news reporter and a sports reporter previously, but it was never my aim or intention to be a sports reporter. I didn't. I never wanted to be that and i ended up technically being that for 20 years from that point onwards so that was that was odd i had to really fight for any commentary after that
0: yeah that that is a a big shift what were some of the highlights from your time working at sky how big a shift was it to move from one club on one local radio station to a national broadcast that's 24/7 football basically it,
3: uh, it was well it, the shift is uh, is generally a tough one because i knew what my my patch was uh Radio leads, I knew all the people at all the clubs, and I got on well with them, but some of the lessons were um I was able to transfer in that getting on with people is a key bit of that of that side of things you need i think you need to be getting on with people frankly it 's football when all said and done um it's it's just a game, so having said all of that. As soon as I moved to Sky Sports News, within months, I was finding myself embroiled in recovering stuff that I never, ever had any inkling that I'd I'd be covering. So, I mean, I I, I talked to some students about this the other day. I saw really quickly, and Sky Sports News was massively important in this, breaking down the concept of this is a sports story and this is a news story. I mean, nowadays it's commonplace, but at that time... It was back page, front page, if you want to break it down like that. Even though nobody buys newspapers now, they'll probably understand that. But then it merged, the two things merged, and, and the back page could become the front page. And I saw it really quickly re- happen at Leeds, because there was um, I was in Istanbul when the t- uh, two lads got murdered in Istanbul. And so I was out there reporting, I was out there to cover a game, and I ended up standing outside the stadium reporting on the, the murder of two fans. So that was like, I was like a crime correspondent, horrendous. Mm. Then uh, the financial collapse collapses repeated. So you're learning stuff about you know flat pack administrations and CVAs and stuff I never knew anything about before, but needed to know now. Uh, then you had the Bowyer Woodgate trial. So I was I actually had to go and cover some of that a whole Crown Court. And there's the two lads who I'd been commentating on. Not that long before, who I'm now sitting opposite there in there in the in the dock, and I'm sitting in the in the press gallery sort of thing. So my role had changed completely. and It, it was awkward because they knew me as the guy who covered Leeds, and now as the bloke who's reporting on their potential kind of com- criminal conviction. But that was what Sky Sports News was. You know, if it, if it was attached vaguely to sport or football, they were going to cover it. And then, of course, the worst of all of those examples was was Gary Speed's death. So I ended up doing things at Sky Sports News that I would never, ever, ever have predicted or imagined. That I'd ended up when I had this plan as a nine year old of being a football commentator, and I'd got to be a football commentator. And now I was in completely different areas, um, and I, I, I didn't particularly enjoy. I just wanted, always wanted to just cover football. I've literally done this job to get into football matches for nothing that's that's the top and the bottom of it
2: well the, the Gary Speed thing um, was very difficult to watch you breaking down but it was dealt with beautifully I thought and um, in a very respectful and beautiful manner as a friend of his was that the hardest thing you've ever had to oh, do in,
3: <laughs> that is those two days
2: however how was the outpour from the general public from that because I hope well, I, th- I, f- I like to think that the amount of love and emotion shown was great not just to Gary but to yourself as well.
3: Well, uh, irrelevant frankly I've got to say. I mean, yeah, nice I guess, but you know, I'd swap it all. You would swap it all in in an absolute heartbeat to not have to have stood there and and do any of it. I I the two the two worst days of my Probably of my life, frankly, because I've been lucky so far. My parents are still alive, and all the rest of it. Um. So, two worst days of my life because the first day was the the sheer sort of shock and and the grief and and all the rest of The absolute sort of bewilderment about how this had come to pass. And then I was getting calls all day long from Sky, um, who were saying, "Oh, we need you to cover this tomorrow." And it, I don't think they underst- I don't think they kind of got the fact no. that he and I. Were, were, were pals sort of thing. So that to them, in fact, one of them actually said to me, I, I know it must be difficult losing a good contact. One of The guys down there said, which was like, uh, I, I mean, I kind of lost it at that. What you, you know, I just couldn't get my head around this, this idea that they thought that's what had happened here. But in the end I thought, well, better that I go and do this hopefully properly, if that's the right phrase, than somebody else comes in and it's just, a, another job for somebody. So in the end, possibly against my better judgment, I decided that I'd, I would go and do it. But I wasn't in a good state all day because I'd had hardly any sleep. Um, and they had me there at six o'clock in the morning or earlier. And then I was still there at five o'clock or 5.30 or whatever it was the same day. And so, and all day, that atmosphere outside of Ellen Road that day was just, I mean, it was it was awful because... Yeah. People were coming along all day and they just wanted to sort of talk about it, which, um, you know, you're absolutely right that people wanted to do that. But that that conversation, that conversation, kind of having that conversation over and over again was, it, yeah, I think it took its impact and then it resulted in by the end of the day where my cameraman said, he rang into the office and said, he can't, he can't, you, sh- you got to pull him off this. He's, he can't do this anymore. Well, and that was the point when I'd sort of broken down on TV live kind of thing.
2: Well, for Joe Public watching and as a Leeds fan, um, I don't think anyone in that position could have done it better than yourself. So thank you for that.
3: Well, that was the aim, obviously. So um, and obviously I knew Gary's mum and dad and I knew the uh, people in the family and stuff. So I did feel it was a responsibility at least to try and do the right thing for them as much as anything. And if I was standing outside there talking to anybody, really, I was talking to them, I hope. So yeah, tough day. Didn't, didn't, don't want to go back to that one. As somebody who knew Gary, could you give us
0: maybe a happier memory to look back on? What what's, what was he like as a, as a bloke? Um, what, what are some of the memories that you have in, of him as, either as a footballer or as a friend?
3: Well, as a, as a footballer, I saw a bit of him at Leeds, but I kind of, um, and he was brilliant. Uh, nobody arrived late to head a goal in from a corner kick or a set piece better than Gary <laughs> Speed did. Uh, brilliant. But all the memories would be about Gary as a bloke because um, he played for Leeds. He would left, and I'd a little bit lost touch with him after he'd gone to other clubs. Uh, Newcastle. I went up to Newcastle and did some stuff with him while I was at Sky, and he was. he was. You know, I was really good. But then it all um, kicked into place because I used to know his dad from doing the match commentaries because his dad used to walk past the commentary position when we used to be in the West Stand in what is now the Director's Box. So we used to chat then so I knew Rog and I'd seen Rog on away trips to Wales because when I used to go and watch Wales still as a fan um, and Gary, and that was while I was at Sky, Gary would be playing and Rog would always go and watch Gary with some of the other lads from his from his uh, local area there was a little group of them so I'd invariably bump into them at an airport and go for a pint with them all the rest of it was great and then um, then he got the, into coaching and I got uh, because he ended up at Sheffield United and stuff so I, he was in my patch then as one of my my people if you like <laughs> And we were doing the Wales stuff together because he was the studio, you know, he was the obvious studio guest for the Wales games, you know, you get a guy like that in, he was just sort of showbiz. So we were in Cardiff quite a lot together. So we'd go out and have a night out after we'd done a game, we'd go out and have a night out together. And I've it was incredible. What? Um, so if you talk about memories, I mean, it was kind of been in, in Gary's slipstream is one of the memories because you'd walk into a room with him or a bar or whatever and people would just literally, heads would just turn because he had that carried himself and he was so incredibly handsome so he would walk in and it was it was incredible to behold kind of thing so all heads would flick in his direction but what he was really really good at and the reason I think there was such an outpouring of, of grief generally across the board was what people recognised about him he was a really good people person he had a brilliant memory for names and faces and he was always very giving of himself whenever people uh, whenever people approached him so he was, you know, he came across as a nice bloke, a really nice bloke, and so that, I think that was, I think that was the, that was why so many people, at so many different clubs, maybe even clubs that he hadn't been at before, felt so kind of affected by the whole thing because they saw a guy that they thought, and that, and that, I mean, he did a little thing when I, I helped him get the Wales job um, because I was, I, I acted as kind of the go-between, if you like, between when he was at Sheffield and I in a job, so it was a little bit awkward. And when Welsh FA were looking for a new manager, so I was able to act a little bit as the intermediary on that one. So I played a, a very small role in establishing co- communication lines between the two parties. And um, so I knew when he was going to get the job ahead of pretty much everybody else. Um, and when he got the job, which he was really happy about, he, he rang me up and he said, listen, I'm, are you coming down to Cardiff? Listen, I'm at the hotel. Come, I'm going to take you out for a meal just to say thanks and so he, that's what he did, he took me out for a meal and raised a glass to me in the meal now that's a very little thing but that doesn't happen very often No, in in football you know you can, you have friends in football and you help people out, they help you out sometimes but he'd made an absolute an effort there if you like to, to recognise the contribution, the small, very small contribution I'd made to him getting this job that he wanted so that was a a mark of the man, if you like. As far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, you, you spoke about your love for Wales there a little bit, and helping Gary get the job. Um, you've written a book, Zombie Nation Two, two. books. Uh, I've got one here. Zombie Nation
3: awakes. The Zombie Nation awakes is the uh, qualification for Euro 2016, and then Don't Take Me Home is the is the it's book. The one they're from- both available on Amazon still, and um, they're a rocking good read.
2: How how was that writing the books about Wales? Is it, did it come easy to you naturally? Uh,
3: it, it, uh, yes, probably because uh, labour love and all that, but also because <laughs> it's a diary, and actually writing a book in diary form—that's why so many people do it—is is is probably the easier way of writing a book. But yeah, it was uh, absolutely um, the whole experience was brilliant. That's my best. You asked earlier about a best work experience. Yeah, and that was my best work experience. That in across the two you know, year and a half of qualification. Um, from beginning to end, everything was just fitted into place, and I was working with great people. The results started coming, and I was there on the pitch at the very moment when Wales finally finally qualified for a for a summer tournament and and that was the that 's the single best working moment i 've had in nearly thirty years definitely
0: more recently, as well as writing the books you 've also set up your own consultancy um, a few yeah. years back. Tag Media,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys have been doing your homework. Haven't <laughs>
0: what, you? What's what's that set up to do, and what's the experience of that been like so far?
3: Well, Tag stands for talk a good game, okay, which is an old football cliche that they used to say. Well, he talks a good game. Generally means, but he's not very good at his job. But so I, I had this thing I had years and years ago um, that that I could help people do that talk a good game because I'd seen, uh, I I think I've been lucky enough to see. How football and the media's relationship has grown into this massive thing that is now. I mean, the two thing, the two things are completely entwined now. There used to be a separation. So I got doing, I got asked to do the uh, coaching, the me, a media module for um, a pro license course in Wales because I was, I just started doing the Wales games as the Sky Man. So I'd made contact with a few of the people behind the scenes. They were missing the guy who usually did the session, so they asked me, would I would I do a pro license session? So I went in to do that, and um, then that's that relationship still exists. You know, that was probably about fifteen years ago. That was still that's still going now. So that was the point at which I, that was my first sideline, if you like. And I really got a, um, I got a real a buzz out of doing that, standing in front of people, talking about, in effect, giving my um, take on things, given my experience. And so I enjoyed doing that, and I've kind of carried on with that. And now it's beginning to expand a little bit into, into other areas. Like I'm doing social media talks for young footballers now, because I've kind of been studying the way these things trends, if you like, and and the way these things have been moving and keeping an archive of stuff. So I can back up points that I make with, with real examples. And I I just generally, I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. I've got parents of both school teachers and grandparents for school teachers. So that, educational thing is in the, in the DNA, I suspect. Um, so it's been a really enjoyable, um, well, it was a sideline. Now it's a, <laughs> what's this, what what's a main line? Is that, the, is that the phrase now? I don't know.
2: And then obviously after a 21 year absence, you've kind of come, come back come to Ellen Road. Come back, back to
3: LUTV, yeah. yeah how, it, how
2: did that all come about and
3: how's it going? Well, it, it came about because, um, I left Sky and, um, I'd uh, mentioned that I was leaving Sky just before I finished to people at Leeds, and they said oh, we, we'll give you a ring because um, you know we'll, might be some stuff for you here. And then we had a talk over the summer about whether there'd be opportunities with LUTV, and they were changing things around a little bit. So, so yeah, we had a chat, and um, and so I said yes, let's just give it a go. Let's get let's get back on the get back on my bike again after 21 years or whatever it was. And It's it's not really changed an awful lot to be honest. <laughs> I thought other, I other than the drop in status. Well, I was Premier League, I yes. was always Premier League. You were Europe, yeah. I, I was Premier League in Europe, and now I'm messing around in the Football League. But obviously, I'm prepared to wait um, to make sure that, that that situation changes. But I was actually quite nervous before doing the first one, which was Bristol City away, because I, as much as uh, soccer Saturdays are brilliant. Soccer Saturday combines the skills of football commentary and uh, radio reporting, and it all has to be done to camera, which makes it quite a difficult skill. Uh, more difficult, I suspect, than some ex footballers give it credit for. It, it requires a number of different things, and you can't rely on anything other than your own sort of your wits because it's live and you t- you're delivering it to camera, so there's no notes or involved or anything like that. Uh, you know, as you see from time to time, it goes wrong, which is, you know, what everyone remembers and enjoys, frankly. So there's a risk element involved with it as well. But so that's quite a, But it did combine the elements of things I'd done previously. So commentary, I think, is a big uh, necessity in that because it's like little bursts of commentary on Soccer Saturday, You're throwing at people 10, 15, 20 seconds as long as the update lasts. But you need to be constantly looking for things that are going on to refer to as well and have a few stats maybe if not much is going on. So you you bring all that to play. So I was kind of still, I hadn't done a TV commentary for Sky for quite a while because what had happened was all the contracts of things that I did, like women's football, I did all the women's football for a while, and then gradually they lost all the contracts for the stuff I was doing. So I kind of drifted out of the football commentary at Sky. Um, But then, so picking up the reins for LUTV was a little bit nervy because it was like, okay, do I still remember how to do this? Um... And uh, I was, you know, I was, in, I was, I was a little doubtful before it, but then uh, I, th- I think I, I proved that to myself anyway that I kind of, I, I've still got the ability to do that type of commentary. Hopefully, <laughs> other people may well disagree. By the way,
0: and do you think that we might see, even if just for one game this season? a reunion of the Bryn Law Norman
3: me and Norm well I've seen quite a lot I've seen a lot more of Norm than I've seen than I've seen for years recently and I've done stuff with him which has been brilliant we did that the centenary events at Salem Chapel and Norman spoke so well at that I mean just fantastic and so I really enjoyed I've really enjoyed seeing him because he's, he's just um, he's like a sort of a, a second grandfather almost I feel like <laughs> I, I've seen him for years so that sounds a bit um, maybe a bit flippant to say that but it's just so nice to see him again and um, the only Norm will happily uh, admit that his big problem is he can't hear currently he's got two uh, two hearing aids in these days so even before the Salem Chapel event I saw him on the the Saturday before Ellen Road and uh, with Susie and Susie called me over Susie is Norman's wife and she called me over and she said oh can you just tell Norman what you're going to ask him on Thursday just in case he can't hear you (laughs) so so we went through a little bit I said honestly it'll it'll be very straightforward but in the end he sat next to me we made sure we engineered it so that Norman was directly to my right hand side but that you know we're all getting old and um and yet he spoke brilliantly at that event so the commentary maybe not the entire commentary but it would be nice to get him on for 10, 15, 20 minutes just to to see whether the old magic's still there
2: Oh it'd be brilliant, (laughs) I'd I'd love to hear that, I'd be fantastic, I think I might even not go to the game and just listen to it 6 and two
3: threes, pal, 6 and two
2: threes. Right, go on then, let's put you on the spot how do you fancy us this season? Are we ever going to make it?
3: Better? Oh, I do, I do. Listen, I am football's biggest pessimist. Yeah, that's probably as a result of following Wales and Wrexham, and to a lesser extent Leeds. But I think Leeds will get. I think Leeds will get promoted. I, I'm so. I'm saying that slightly with an overview, maybe a bit little less emotionally invested in it than you guys. But from what I've seen so far, if, you, if the evidence in your eyes is anything to go by, Leeds have been the best team I've seen over a course of games. Obviously, I've seen them more than I've seen anybody else. But in every game that I've seen, and remember, I wasn't at Cheltenham or Millwall, but every game I've seen, Leeds have been the better side. Um, West Brom apart, but they won the game anyway. In every other game, they should have won every other game. And I've seen nothing in the division thus far, to suggest that there's anybody who is anywhere better than Leeds. So there's one missing element currently, which is goals. It's quite straightforward. Crucial though. Crucial, (laughs) yes. I'll give you that. But if that problem gets solved in whatever way, I see no reason at all why Leeds don't get promoted this season. I don't think the Championship... Um, it's no less competitive in fact it's more competitive because every team's much of a muchness you know so there are mar- there's fine margins on all of this so Swansea came and looked really good I thought when Swansea came to Ellen Road and then I've had a dip a typical championship dip since then so yeah it, there's nothing in there to be afraid of at all and Leeds on their day uh, have got a better system if not necessarily better players but they've got a better system than than the teams that are coming up against. Um, so that one missing element gets added. There's no reason why Leeds don't get promoted.
0: Now, I agree with everything that you've said, but I would say the reason that Leeds might not get promoted is the law of Leeds that...
3: <laughs> which we saw in, you know... Huge... So last of, season? Last season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in, I had a conversation last season on that very basis at the playoff game, which I was doing hospitality at the playoff game, and... Um, in one of the suites or in a number of the suites and I was standing watching from that that lovely position that there is in the East Stand on the halfway line where the real posh seats are you lads won't have been in there but anyway <laughs> that's where I was watching from and I was standing next to Duncan McKenzie and Duncan talks a lot and all the way through the first half, he's talking to me and he rarely doesn't always talk about the games it can be about all sorts of stuff but he was—he was when Leeds scored. He said, "Do you think they'll take us down to Wembley? Do you think we'll go down to Wembley?" Oh wow! <laughs> and I thought that's—that's that's a footballer. That so is this Duncan's fault then? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is blame Duncan. <laughs> blame Duncan McKenzie because I would, as a fan, I well, I would never ever say anything like that. No, I know really. fans when you used to go into the vox pops before games and you say to fans. You know, you get told you've got to go and ask fans about the game. You say to them, what score do you think it'll be? And they always go, I think we'll win 3-0 or I think it'll be 2-0 to us. If anybody ever stopped me and asked me for that, I'd say, oh, we'll lose. Because that is my natural disposition. Brit, the, I, I the would f- never predict a victory.
2: The funniest, well, I say funniest, the worst one I've got was Preston at home a few years ago. We were 4-1 up at half time and I jokingly turned to the guy to my right. I'd and settle mate, for a draw. I just says... Alright, that's me done. See you on Saturday. Easy one. That three points in the bag. Second half. Lose six <laughs> four. That's right. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's why, you know, that's leads that, but that's football that frankly. That's why you would I would never I'd always think, well, if they get one, we could collapse. That's my that's my mindset. I mean you know, it was like watching Wales in the Euros. We had to go three one up against Belgium with with literally 30 seconds on the clock before I would allow myself to countenance the possibility that we just might win this game but you'd never let yourself go until that point because you're always afraid that it's going to go awry kind of thing.
0: So with that in mind in your period of time you know a lot of years now where you've been covering Leeds United what's the biggest Leeds that moment that you've encountered in
3: that time? Well, last year's playoff collapse has got to be right up there because it was engendered by a moment of pure comedy just before half-time in a game in which Leeds were in complete control. Well, oh, I wasn't laughing. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, all right, black comedy then. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, it, it, in terms of that's Leeds that, it, it was a comedic moment par excellence because Leeds were, were utterly... That's why Duncan McKenzie was having conversations about going to Wembley and all the rest of it because Leeds were so utterly in control. Derby looked like they'd thrown the towel in and then Kiko Kassir and Liam Cooper between them contrived to to gift a goal to Derby. At which point the whole thing unravelled. And how
2: good has Liam Cooper been that season?
3: What? And continually. So so yeah. So, so that the, something in that moment crazy happened that that you know completely unpredictable, but actually utterly predictable as well. So yeah, that's that, that's high up the list. That one definitely. And it's interesting because you obviously have the
0: same feeling that we've got about Leeds with Wrexham and with Wales. So it's it's not... We, we think that it's unique to Leeds, but it isn't. There's many football fans out there, whoever...
2: It's a complete conspiracy.
0: <laughs> whoever, whoever they support, people um, will think that their team is likely to do the worst thing possible at the worst moment possible. But you've got a slightly more independent view on Leeds United than we have, do you think there is any sort of conspiracy against Leeds within the football
3: world, or is it all in our imaginations? I, I, I can only think it probably is. In, that, that's in what I thought. However, I'll, I'll, I'll counter that by saying, having, again, recently been through the history, when you start reading the number of times when Leeds have found themselves embroiled in something, where you go, oh, that seems a bit off, that... There are quite a lot of them, probably more than most other clubs. Certainly, the appearance given is that more than most other clubs have suffered. Now, whether that's pure coincidence, it's probably pure coincidence but I'd understand why you would begin to thread all that together you know bent refs in European finals um, the, the offside goal the Tinkler offside goal and all the rest of it not only that but things like fixture scheduling when Leeds have been forced to play numerous important games in almost back to back effectively hampering their chances in not just one of the games but in all of the games all those aspects do a, a create a picture of of a, a club that has been sort of uh, has a bit of a black mark against it, if you like. Um, and then maybe that grows, and then that becomes a thing in itself. And you do wonder. I mean, the football league has, um, particularly the Championship, has real cause to to salute Leeds because Leeds give everybody <laughs> their biggest yeah. gates return of, of the season you know, everyone's biggest club, everyone's biggest game is when Leeds are in town kind of thing. So would the football league want Leeds not to go in the premier league on that basis? I don't know. It's quite that clear cut, but, um, some of the decisions sometimes, I mean, I felt really sorry for the lad with the with the gambling, um, conviction, uh, the punishment recently because I was extremely harsh Well, in a game that's, you know, it's a wash with money from, from bookmakers, um, what else, it's almost what else do you expect how can you you know it's almost churlish to say that the title sponsor of the league is, is a gambling company it's almost churlish to say you're going to get punished for this but everywhere you go you'll see adverts for it kind of thing yeah. There's a young guy like that as well one of the things other than the commentary
0: that you do thinking back to the 90s is obviously interview the managers after the game yeah. you had howard wilkinson and george graham in the period that you were covering the club yeah Two two managers I'd say who were uh, could be quite prickly if they didn't like the question or yeah, or yeah. we'd lost or whatever it might be. Any stories from that time about a particular if they took uh, umbrage with something you'd said? Oh
3: yeah, well Howard. Um Howard was always difficult Howard's probably the most difficult person I've dealt with in football over the years he's the only one who nearly banned me from Ellen Road at one point but that's a story for another occasion it didn't happen ultimately Um, but he would be really difficult it was one game after when uh, Leeds lost at Mansfield in the League Cup and I went downstairs to do the interview with him in the tunnel And all the uh, national boys were there in a little clutch in the tunnel and they kind of knew what was going to come from Howard. So they kind of pushed me to literally push me to the front of the group so I could do my radio leads post-match interview with him. And then they retreated and watched the outcome. So I said to Howard something on the lines of you must be really disappointed with that. Um, you know, how will you you feel about that tomorrow? And he said, oh, why don't you come round to my house tomorrow and you'll find me in the back garden and I'll be chained to a tree and you can, I'll be bare chested and you can whip me. You can whip me if you want. Will that make you feel better? And I was completely taken aback by this and I could hear the sniggers and the laughs from all of them (laughs) over my shoulder because he was like, Play to the crowd which uh, Howard would sometimes do that um, when we were interviewing him so that was a difficult one George Graham the classic with George Graham was after the game in Maritimo when he'd already been linked with the job at Spurs yeah. it was a long night in Maritimo We'd had a couple of drinks that afternoon. I was far less professional in those days. (laughs) And we'd found the president's suite where there was a free bar before kickoff, which was at a ridiculously late 10 o'clock at night or something. So after the match, emboldened, should we say, um, I said to him before we started the interview, I was with the guy from YTV, good guy called John Shires, and the guy from BBC, big mate of mine, Damian Johnson. So we're all pals. And we were lined up almost leaning on each other by this stage. (laughs) And I said to George before he started the post-match interview, is it all right if we mention the other, the other being the Spurs, the fact he's been linked with the Spurs job? And he said, Are you taking the piss, son? <laughs> and they all kind of like sniggered and, and laughed. And this is all captured on film because the cameras were already rolling at this point. And it popped up in a YTV documentary about Leeds not very long ago. Really, So that was the ultimate kind of withering put down. So, yeah, it, we had our moments, definitely.
2: So, uh, do you listen or not? Have you listened to anything we've done?
3: Yes, I have. Okay, so... As if mate, this involves singing, you've got no chance. No. It
2: Can you do ailing? No, I'm joking. <laughs> do the ailing <laughs> 2 thing. Um, so, uh, we've got a prize draw going, where we've had uh, our interviewees drop in some kind memorabilia from either themselves or from the club or something. Uh, we've got DVDs from Lee Hicken, Do You Want to Win? Uh, we've got Stats' latest book, I was wondering if there's anything Bryn Law can chuck in for the prize draw for Leeds That?
3: Uh, I tell you what, you can have one of my very few remaining copies of uh, Zombie Nation Awakes.
2: Thank you. Could you sign it
3: for us? Uh, I'll sign it, yeah.
2: Oh, what a blow. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us, Bryn. Finally, what does the future hold? Any Uh, unfulfilled ambitions? uh,
3: Yeah, probably, but I'm not sure what they are. So that maybe makes it a bit weird, but... (laughs) currently ambition is just to um get a load of different things going i've got a few projects going on at the moment which um which if they come to fruition will be quite interesting quite exciting so i'm in that strange in between period having done 20 years at sky and now i'm out there in the in the big wide world if you like trying to find other stuff or looking for other stuff so yeah if i if I, if i if i make the projects fall into place then it'll be interesting so yeah, that at the moment short term ambition is to is to make that stuff work, you know. And it would be great if Leeds got promoted. I'd enjoy doing that. That'd be nice.
0: Yeah, you you and us both. Bryn, <laughs> Bryn thank you, mate. Thank you so much for joining it's us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Bryn. It's been fantastic to meet you and really appreciate you giving us the time. No problem. Well, that was an absolutely fantastic interview with Bryn. Thanks ever so much for that. It's really weird hearing it from um, the media side, you know, how much football changed. Like Bryn's been through the huge change of football, particularly Sky. Um, It's weird to think he was there at the
1: formation of Sky Sports News as well. It's funny as well, thinking about how Bryn's career took him on a different path to what he was actually expecting and actually comfortable with and how it doesn't just happen to all of us. Bryn in being in what many people may consider to be a dream job, ended up doing something for 20 years that he didn't really, it wasn't really his out-and-out purpose, was it? I still can't get my head around that he was 26 at Wembley. No.
0: Imagine 26, that being you. When we did that piece on Bryn in the podcast before, I looked up his age when he was commentating for BBC Radio Leeds, I could not believe it. How young he was. And that's no
1: disrespect to how you look, Bryn. You look fantastic. But (laughs) it's the fact that you got that gig so early and did such a bloody good job. I think for anybody who has any kind of interest in football or journalism or sports journalism, (laughs) it's a fascinating listen um, to hear how people's career uh, dynamics can change and the path that you can go along. And and it's it's a big kind of biography of Bryn built up a long time. And uh, I'd be certainly fascinated to hear far more about it yeah i mean
0: one of the questions that um we didn't get to ask him that he's working on now and goes back to what james was saying about how the media has changed he put a tweet out which said that liverpool are earning six million pounds off their own youtube channel he's obviously at leeds now working for uh, lutv but you you imagine that we've got the same sort of scale and we could you know if we could make six million pounds off a youtube channel we could buy a new player
1: we leads that podcast or we lead United
0: Both. Just, oh, <laughs> I'd take six million pounds, no problem. Um, it was a, an absolute privilege to meet Bryn. Um, just on, you know, for me personally, but it was really, really interesting to hear him talk. The thing that I was um, most pleased about was the way that he absolutely gets football. I think because he's a Wrexham fan. All of his talk about VAR, all of his talk about what it's like to experience football as a fan, I'm sure helps him then bring it through in his reporting and in his commentary.
1: The reason personally that I wanted to be involved in doing these interview podcasts was to get the perspectives of the on the club from a range of different viewpoints and certainly having one of the voices of Leeds United talk through his experiences over such a a period of time. And actually, Brins is fascinating because he was there and in and amongst it and then he was at the Sky Sports level and viewing it from afar. So you get such a contrast on it. That
0: bit is, um, you don't really think about it at the time that you go into football as a sports reporter thinking you're going to be commentating on football, talking about penalties and referee decisions and goals. Uh, and then all of a sudden he's at Istanbul and he's at um, you know outside Elland Road when Gary Speed dies. Uh, he's in the courtroom with Boyer and Woodgate. I mean he's been there for some really key moments in our fairly recent history, but um, none of it really to do with football.
1: Thank you to Brim for contributing his book uh, Zombie Nation Awakes signed. His signed copy of Zombie Nation Awakes to our uh, prize bundle, the prize draw, which is how do how do you uh, enter that, James? You can enter at leadsthat.com. that dot com. And yeah,
0: thanks really, thanks very much to Bryn uh, and to uh, his wife for having us and uh, having me and Andy round. Yeah, thanks for the beer, Bryn. Love a beer. It's got a very nice fridge apparently, didn't he? Incredible fridge. We're very fortunate
2: where we end up, aren't we? Let's uh, let's end with that and just say thanks, Bryn.
0: Thanks, Bryn, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another lead to that podcast.
2: Podcast Network.